This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This episode is brought to you by GoGo. Introducing SmartShield, GoGo's exclusive customer membership program that protects your best in-class, in-flight Wi-Fi system. GoGo's SmartShield membership provides greater cost control, exclusive discounts, and peace of mind with equipment protection. Plus, you can still take advantage of savings of up to $35,000 on your GoGo Advance install. Get technology that adapts as you do, and when you order by December 31st, 2021, you'll have until December 31st next year to install and save. Visit gogo.to slash aopa-podcast to learn more. That's gogo.to slash aopa-podcast. Welcome to a special edition of There I Was, a podcast where we put you in the cockpit with pilots in demanding situations and we learn how they flew out of them. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. AOPA colleague Kayla McLeod and I had the opportunity to sit down earlier this week with Dario Costa. You'll remember him as the Italian pilot who flew his Edge 540 through two tunnels in Turkey earlier this year, setting four different world records. Listen in and enjoy. Hey everyone, my name is Kayla McLeod and today I'm joined by a very exciting guest, Dario Costa. He's an Italian aerobatic pilot and a current member of the Red Bull Air Race team. He's been flying since he was 16 years old and has amassed over 5,000 hours of flight time. You may recognize Dario as being the pilot that just flew through not one, but two tunnels in Turkey. Thanks so much for joining us, Dario. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure. <laughs> We're happy to have you. I'm also joined by the Senior Vice President of the AOPA Air Safety Institute, Richard McSpadden. Richard is a former Thunderbird uh, for the United States Air Force, and he is a current backcountry and adventure pilot. So I thought it might be fun to get us all on a call today to chat about Dario's most recent uh, tunnel flying adventure, as well as our shared love for general aviation. So thank you all so much for being here. Oh, man, I, I can't wait to talk to Dario. So Dario, thanks so much for your time. So many questions. I don't think we can fit them all in. But I want to start with I heard a podcast that you gave and you said you wanted this to be a man mission, not a machine mission. Can you talk about what you meant by that and what the differences in those are? Yeah, I mean, uh, I didn't want to to make it happen thanks to to the airplane, but I wanted to make it happen thanks to the preparation of of myself. So basically, we didn't touch anything in the airplane except normal and standard air racing uh, modifications. So the plane is a 
it's an airplane that you can you can easily race with. Uh, so the only thing we had was the shark skin made by Bionic Surfaces, and that's all. We didn't have anything else modified on the machine beside of the modification that the machine already had for me to to do uh, my air shows and and all my or my flying that was was kind of daily routine. So I wanted to take the plane and bring it in a tunnel. Like if we are just flying around and then we see a tunnel, oh, let's fly into the tunnel. <laughs> and so the preparation had to be on the human side and not on the machine side. Yeah, I, I thought it was fascinating. I mean, you're a Red Bull Air Race pilot, aerobatic pilot, and yet at the early stages of this, you did some assessment where you didn't think your reaction time was fast enough. You measured it at like, 400 milliseconds and you figured out you needed to be at 250 milliseconds or something. So that's amazing to me. Talk to us about that reaction and how you train to that kind of reaction. Yeah. Well, when we talk about reaction time, we have to be precise on, on, on what we mean with reaction time in such a stunt. So it's not a generic reaction time because human beings are usually fast enough, but not precise. So you have to be fast, but you have to move your hands in the way and in the amplitude you want. So it's not just how fast you react to a, like to a noise or to a, to, to a tap on your shoulder, but it's reacting with the correct action. So it's, it's really reacting with the correct action in, in that moment. And uh, in the air race, if you calculate the speed of the airplane and the height, when we are going the lowest we can, so let's say 10 meters from the ground, even if it's 15 meters, the red, the red area of the cone, but we are allowed to go in between the gates. So between gate one, for example, and gate two, we are allowed to go at 10 meters. In that case, at that speed, 400 kilometers per hour, let's say about, we need to have a reaction time that is around 100 milliseconds, which is way faster than what we mean. But we don't have to react in a precise way or in a specifically precise way. We just have to put the plane out of the ground. So pull up and go away or, or roll and go away, you know? So, so it's a different reaction time that we need in this case. In this case, I had to be very fast, but very accurate. And the cognitive reaction had to be very accurate. So I had to analyze quickly and, and make the decision-making faster than any other uh, occasion I ever had to do. Yeah, I, I led the Air Force Thunderbirds for a while and did a lot of high-speed, low-altitude flying and we used to talk in terms of time to impact. So at different altitudes, your time to impact in case you make a mistake is, is pretty short. And in your case, in a tunnel there, you weren't only dealing with time to impact below you, but above you as well. So your time to impact in the tunnel was really non-existent. By the time you made a mistake, you, it would have been over, right? So yep. that's, what you're, that's what you're talking to when you're talking in terms of your precision and your reaction time. Yeah. So there was almost no margin. So it's, uh, it's what I loved of this idea that I had very, when I was a very, very young kid, but I didn't know how difficult in reality it would have been. So I just had the idea of, of going through a solid obstacle and getting out of it. So, but knowing that there is only one exit when you enter the tunnel and the tunnel is quite long, that's what makes also this project very difficult from a mental point of view. As, as you said, there is no time to react. So if we have to calculate how fast I have to be to react, there is almost no time. I had two meters, 
overhead or three meters overhead, four meters on, on each side. I mean, it's nothing. It's nothing. It's less than the 10 meters we were talking about before. But the reaction time training was born because when we analyzed, with when the engineers, when bionic surface technologies engineers analyzed what could have happened beside of, of, of making a mistake. So, so let's take the plane going straight on a perfect ideal path. Then they said, okay, let's, we have to simulate on our computers what will happen aerodynamically when you go into this specific tunnel with your specific airplane. So we had to 3D scan the airplane and they had to scan the whole, they had to reproduce in, in three dimensions the whole tunnel because the tunnel had shapes had ventilators, had lights. And they said, well, Dario, you have to be aware that in this, 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 and this point, you will have an increase or a decrease in lift. So I knew exactly, for example, that at the entrance of the second tunnel, I had an increase of lift that could have pulled me up and the reaction time there to reduce or eliminate this increase in lift, this dangerous increase in lift, was below 250 milliseconds because the increase in lift would have happened in 250 milliseconds. And that's where I have to be very fast, but at the same time, I have to be precise because if I overreact, I simply touch the ground, which was my worst nightmare because then I bounce up and I go directly with my head into the ventilators and the lights and all the things that you see there. And I have no protection for that. So you're, you're talking about all the things that could have gone wrong. And although we don't like to think about those sort of things, this was very important to think about in your situation. So what was your backup plan? I mean, if something was to go not the way that you would have liked, would you just pull the power to idle and land it? Or, or what would you have done? There is no backup plan when you bounce at that speed in that in that in that dimension of obstacle, right. you know, there, so you just, you just have to, the backup plan was to prepare myself properly. And this was, this is the human side of the project. So right. there are, there are tons of things where we don't have a backup. We don't have the option of having a backup plan. And, uh, and what we have to do is to, is to prepare ourselves as much as possible with the biggest effort from everybody, not from me only. So from the engineers, from the trainers, from everybody to make the backup plan being simply the mitigation of all the things that can go wrong. So when we are talking about like sports in general, or like, you know, Formula One, for example, or MotoGP, if you, if you have a problem on a, on a break and you have no brakes, what is the backup plan? No. So, so, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you can't have a backup plan for every single meter where you can have a, a failure of a break. So we are, we are going in, with this project. I wanted to go into a new dimension of aviation, which is the one that I actually live in. I, I, I and I live thanks to it, which is the sport side of the, of aviation. So we are going into a sport spirit. So we are going, we, many people have been asking me, what if tomorrow they will emulate this? I mean, is like saying that people will emulate Formula One drivers. It's this is not the case, you know. You can't close an, a tunnel tomorrow. You can't fly to a tunnel just because you saw me 
flying through a tunnel. But what I hope is that this has been pushing boundaries of training pilots. This has been pushing boundaries of engineering, of our dynamics, where we can evolve thanks to this project. This is what I hope will we'll push people to do, but not to emulate this is something like this. I mean, it took 29 years for me to, to get ready for this. It took 14 months of preparation full-time to get ready for this. It's not was not just a daredevil thing. It was not just a, a improvising thing, improvised thing, you know? And, um, and this is the whole beauty of this project that I, that I really, really hope that people will understand and not just the, the act itself of 43.44 seconds of flight through tunnels. Yeah. Dario, when you, when I watch a video of you flying, you're almost perfectly still with your head straight. And I was trying to figure out whether or not you were using your peripheral vision or trying to block out your peripheral vision. Can you talk to that a little bit? Did that take some training to keep your head that still? What to talk to that a little bit? Yeah, we, we've been training a lot. If you watch the videos, I mean, the documentary will be out in December where you will see a lot more of my training. But if you watch the video, the BTS, the behind the scenes video, you will see that I'm training with, uh, uh, for example, on a balance board and I'm turning my reaction time on a big screen where the video of the tunnel is passing the whole time is a video that I took with a car um, driving at 270 kilometers per hour. This, the same path from the same starting position with a 360 camera on top of the car, which is exactly measured at the same height of my eyes when I'm flying at 30 centimeters from the, from the ground with my wheels 30 centimeters from the ground. And this training was also uh, with my neck pulled. So there was a trainer behind and many people, I see the comments of the video say, why the hell are they pulling your neck? Or what, what, what is it like a dog on a leash or something like that? It's very funny, but in reality, there is a reason for every single thing. So the balance board is, for example, to, to simulate the, the, the floating of the plane because the plane anyway moves in all dimensions. So the only way to simulate that is not to be with the floor, with the feet on the ground, but is on the ballast board because I move all around and my core has to work. And, uh, and this gives me the simulates more or less. It's like kind of a simulator. So it simulates the, the, the movements inside the plane. The neck is to make it strong, but not also to focus my eyes on the, on my aiming point so that I can learn and my neck can learn to, to keep that aiming point still, whatever the rest of the body does with the airplane. So you see my head still, but in reality, my eyes are still, but the rest of the body is, is moving at all time. As you, as you can see from the videos, the plane is not steady. How about the, the lights, Dario, the, the tunnel lights that were just flying by you at that speed, were they disorienting or? Yeah, the lights. The lights were very annoying when I drove the car. So when I did the test last um, months before uh, going through and last year when I first drove the car through the tunnel, just a normal car, when I did the first site visit uh, now 16 months ago, uh, the lights are very annoying. And of course, they, they also... Um, have been trained. So I've been training for the lights and you can see again in the videos and documentary, you will see more. I'm training that exercise with strobe light glasses where the trainer, uh, is, uh, is using the strobe glasses as he wants. So he's actually, uh, reducing or increasing the frequency and even blocking out some areas of my, of my sight. And he can do many things with those glasses are very, very good. And that's how I train for, for that let's say, disturbing uh, light yeah. effect. Can I ask you about the takeoff? I noticed 
you were on the far left side of the tunnel when you started the takeoff roll. And as you started, you had some pretty quick, pretty aggressive rudder movements just to get yourself going. And then you had to take off and, and level off within one to five feet, I think was your range in there, which is an, a very unnatural takeoff, right? Can you talk to us about why just start on the left side? Why did we see the rudder movement so quick and aggressive in the beginning? I mean, thanks for this question, because in all the interviews I got till now, nobody ever asked me about the takeoff, but the takeoff was one of the, my, my biggest, biggest challenges. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, that plane is so powerful. So, right. so light. And we even made it lighter because I didn't have enough space. I wanted to take off in a way to be airborne before the exit of tunnel number one. But the problem was that tunnel number one was curved, is not straight. So if I was putting myself in the middle of tunnel number one, I would have looked into the wall. So that's why I'm all to the far left. So that's yeah. the, that's the, the farthest point where I could push the plane, keeping it straight forward, looking out and seeing the entrance of the second tunnel. And this, this was again, another problem because, uh, in reality, I didn't have that much of a, uh, takeoff run, uh, available because you can take off in about 90 meters with my airplane. Uh, but when you do that takeoff, you can't take off smoothly. You can't go off and stay 30 centimeters because my aim was for the first till the entrance of tunnel number two, I wanted to be a 30 centimeter from the ground because I knew that there was a lift increase at the entrance of tunnel number two. So I said, if I don't react quickly, at least I have more margin over my head. So I said, I will enter a 30 centimeter and then I will continue climbing to 70 centimeter, which is what I did. But you have to be aggressive also because you don't see when I, when you sit inside the edge, you don't see forward. So I could not see anything. So I had to be very aggressive on the very first part till I raised the tail. And that's why you see that rather movement because I had to keep it straight, but I could not, I had to use my peripheral vision, which was two walls. Basically I had no other reference and one wall was very, very close was basically my, my wingspan, yeah. my half wingspan. So we're talking about three and a half meters or something more. And the other one was, was a lot bigger, was double. So I had to, I had to play with my peripheral vision, but I had to play with, with the lights on top, I, which were inclined. So I could not, I could not follow those. So I had to immediately raise my tail, raise my tail, but then I had to slow down not to be ballooning mm -hmm. on the, on the lift off. And that's, that's what I did basically. And that's what I trained at home. That yeah. was part of my homework. Yeah. That, that was uh, that was fascinating because, you know, you were on the far left and uh, Kayla and I both fly tail draggers. And we know that, when you had the power, your airplane is going to want to tend to move left. So you had to really be active on the right rudder, but you didn't have a lot of room on either side. So just to, <laughs> no. back to that reaction precision balance that you said you were working the whole time. Yeah. I worked a lot also on my coordination, uh, hand eye coordination and foot eye coordination. I played, I, I'm in love with foot eye coordination, uh, in the air race, if there is something that is really, really crucial and very, very difficult to, to have is that foot movements precise to be coordinated. So when you see an airplane in the areas going up and down, like a dolphin in the chicken, you can understand pilots can understand and experienced pilot like you can un easily understand that is not coordinated flight. Mm -hmm. And, and I 
always been training and working hard on being a very coordinated pilot at high speed and fast roll rates. And I worked harder, even harder these last months to be ready for, for this takeoff. And it was very important for me to, to train that and to practice. And, and, and I mean, you saw that yeah. it's, it's, it's all about precision, this project. You, I think your speed going through the tunnel was like 245 kilometers per hour, roughly 150 miles an hour. How'd you decide on that is the right speed? Yeah. I mean, the speed was not that, that, I mean, everywhere is written that speed, but in reality, that's an average speed. So that okay. was an average speed taken from the whole, the whole tunnel. So I'm entering in 250 kilometers per hour, let's say in the second tunnel, if you take only that one and I'm exiting at 278 kilometers per hour. So about 280 kilometers per hour. So we decided this speed with engineers. So at the beginning, the person that gave me this speed as a indication was Peter Begenier. So I asked Peter at the beginning, what you suggest as a speed, uh, 100, 110, 120, 130, full speed, what do you think? And then he suggested 120 as a minimum speed, which was absolutely an amazing advice because when I started then uh, testing, not in the tunnel, but testing on, on normal runways and everything, I realized that 120 was giving me the right attitude to have a nice sight, a nice view outside the plane. And then with the engineers, we discussed if I could go faster because I wanted actually to try to go faster. But the fastest you go, the higher all their dynamics effects will be. So everything that I mentioned before, increase, decrease in lift, everything was, was going to be, of course, higher. Plus, you know, it's, it's also about having a fixed number for them to simulate the whole, the whole path. So we decided to stick on 120. In reality, the plan was 120 at the entrance of tunnel number two. And then I wanted to uh, keep that speed or a little bit higher till the shape change because the shape change of tunnel number two was very, very challenging because at that point I would have had a decrease in lift. And that's also another thing that I didn't want to, uh, I wanted to nail. I wanted to react properly. And uh, I decided that after that point, I would have gone full throttle. And that's what I did. That's why I'm exiting at the highest speed. So after that point, when I'm basically, I ticked that critical point, I said, okay, now the tunnel is square. I just have 500 meters. Let's go full throttle. But one of the reasons of going full throttle was because I had the exit and at the exit, the highway starts to turn. Yeah. So I had to be fast and crisp in the exit, not too crisp, but I had to be crisp and to be crisp, you need speed. Otherwise you risk to just all the plane. So I wanted to simply have that energy to be able to have a nice and sharp pull up and get out of the highway and the light poles. And I imagine those were your target speeds, but you never glanced at your airspeed indicator, right? You probably set your power to what you'd practiced that trained to where you knew would get you that speed. And you, you didn't mess with it until you went full power at the end. Is that right? Exactly. I mean, you could not look anywhere else than your aiming point. And in the tunnel number two, your aiming point is a fake exit because the tunnel number two has a rise. So it goes yeah. uphill, then levels. And in the square part, which is the last 500 meters of a 1.730 meters, 1.730 kilometers, he's flat. So if you go, for example, at the exit of tunnel number two, and you look back into it, you don't see the exit. You don't see anything. You just see the shape uh -huh. change and that's it. 
So when you go inside the tunnel number two, I could only see the end of the round shape with the bright light coming from the last 500 meters. Mm. But I could not see clearly a square or anything that looked like an exit. And if when you are flying so close to the ground and not only to the ground, but to everything that is around you, as you said, you can't move your eyes out of your aiming point. And I was using my peripheral vision to keep the height. So to, to basically to, um, to understand my height change using some, some reference I had when I entered the second tunnel so that I could understand if I was going too high or too low, uh, but I was never looking at the speed. So I could not, I could not know exactly the speed. And I have to say that I did a mistake in the entrance of number tunnel number two. I was supposed as a, as, as we discussed to be at 120 knots, but was, I was at one, 125 knots and 120 <laughs> knots was because the ballet time camera system, which is 85 cameras around the tunnel entrance were supposed to catch me like in the matrix movie. And, and this was made unfortunately just half of it. So if you see the, the, the video and the BTS, you can see that half of it worked out. So the cameras are actually working. So they stop me, they freeze me and they can go around me, but just on one side and not all around the tunnel. And this was my fault was not, was not the, the camera and the video guy, the media guys crew, which were amazing, but was my fault because I entered five knots too high and we, te <laughs> we tested and we set the cameras with the laser that was catching me before entering there at the, at that speed. So the laser was activating the cameras considering a speed of 120 knots. And I was a little bit too fast. You know, I, I think, you know, taking off out of a tunnel, not being able to look at your airspeed indicator, I think we'll spot you five knots. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They, were, they were happy anyway, so I was happy. They were happy. I suspect they were, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, listeners, do you love aviation? Did you know that general aviation contributes billions to the U.S. economy every year and is a vital pipeline for military and commercial pilot force? AOPA works to ensure the vitality of the aviation industry and supports our freedom to fly. Join us and become a member now at AOPA.org. You'll become part of a worldwide community of aviation enthusiasts. We'd love to have you. Find out more at AOPA.org. So I wondered about that too. You know, an aviation transition usually invites more risk. You know, you, when you take off, you're transitioning from ground to air. When you land, you're transitioning. And so when I uh, watched your video, I saw you took off in a dark tunnel, transition into light outside, transition back into a dark tunnel, transition back outside, and all of that in a span of about 45 seconds. Is that where you thought the most risk was in all those transitions in and out and in and out? Yeah, I mean, the light transition was quite delicate. That's why also we train with the lights. And uh, that's why I was telling you about the glasses going uh, like uh, shading a full, full part of the eyes. And another, another thing that was a problem was a transition between the airflow that you have inside a tunnel, which is always on, on, on one direction that you get out and you have 300 meters where you don't know the air exactly where, what we'll do. And, uh, so these both transitions were a problem for, for the light, as I told you, I trained a lot 
a lot with these glasses. So basically all my training was, or most of my training was using these glasses. So to, to get used to it, I slept inside the tunnel in a, in a camper the, the day before. So I spent my time two meters from the airplane. So my, my, uh, they put a caravan. I asked to, to be there so that I could, uh, not only get used to the light and those yellow and red lights of the tunnel to the darkness, but I could also use, get used to the smell, to the sound, everything. You know, the guys were working still the whole night and that sound was kind of getting me used to the sound I would have had with the plane because also the sound that you hear inside the cockpit is different because it's, it's, there is a lot of echo. So it's, it's really, really, really different from what you hear usually. So all this was to get used to that and... Um, Wow. Yeah, that, different. That's really fascinating to me, Dario, because one of the things we like to try to emphasize when people are in training is don't overlook the basics and the basics, you know, not near as complicated as what you were going through. But for us GA pilots, that is to sit in your airplane and know exactly where your switches are and where you keep your iPad or your pencil or whatever and get used to how the seatbelt snaps and how to just all those things at time you can sit in there and just get yourself immersed in your environment means you just have to think about those things less and you can focus on the really complicated things. And it's so interesting to see that you were doing that on a really you know complicated scale. It's the same concept though. You were trying to get used to all those elements and take them out of the way as being a factor to you. Right? Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly what I wanted to do is to get used and to make, myself familiar with all the basics and, and have no, nothing disturbing me. So nothing had to disturb me, which was the basics also of my training. So when we started to train, the first thing as we said is, okay, we have all the dynamic effects, everything, but it doesn't matter if I'm fast and precise to react when my body is not working properly. And maybe I'm, I'm having, I don't know, I'm having some disturb. I have a, a shoulder that is in pain. I have my, my right hand that doesn't really work properly because I have, I feel that I'm tired on the head. You know, the, all these has to be, has to be fixed first. So the basics has to be fixed. So I have to be fully fit, perfectly focused on, on the task and nothing had to disturb me like the light, like the sound, like the sound difference, the light difference, the, the darkness, and then they change out, uh, to light again, you know, all these had to be, had to be all like ticked out and, and filtered. So I wanted to be able to filter all this so that all my body, all my brain, everything was focused only on one task, which was flying smoothly and precise through a solid obstacle out and then in yeah. again. Intense focus, intense focus for 45 seconds. <laughs> um, I mean, I had, I had to, I had to learn when to blink. So if you, if you check the video, the, you, you were talking about the speed. I didn't look at the speed. So there was only one moment I knew I had to look at the speed and I knew how to do it. I prepared myself to do it in the proper way, in the proper timing, which was few meters before the exit of tunnel number two. If you look at the video, you will see my eyes going down twice, I think, before the exit. And that's because I have to check my speed before I pull. Because if I had the wrong sensation of the speed and then I exit the tunnel safely and I'm only at 85 knots or 95 knots and I pull like hell trying to pull six, seven Gs, the plane will stall. 
and then I would destroy the whole project just because I didn't I didn't get the the, the, the sensation or the feeling of the speed correct, which could happen, could have happened. Looking at that exit. I think the road curves a little bit. So as you were coming out of the exit, those light poles looked to me yeah. like they were really pretty close to you as coming out. So our natural tendency would be to think, oh, he made it through the tunnel. He's made it. Well, not quite yet. He's still got to get out from under yeah. those light poles, right? Yeah. Yeah. You have the light poles on the left and I had a heel coming on the right with the, with the big parking area for the construction works of the, of the highway. And uh, so I had to check my speed and that was the moment I knew I could do it just before the exit and I had to do it. So I trained for that. And that's why on that moment I tried to just because the exit is quite big, the, the square exit was quite bigger than the rest of the tunnel. So those 500 meters at the end were quite more relaxing than those. So I prepare myself to do that. And I, I know that I, I have to do it. So, but when I was talking about moving, when you were talking about moving the eyes, there also, there is the blinking. So you, you don't want to blink too much because you're going to lose that focus on, on, on all the environment that is surrounding you. So when we're doing the simulation with that big screen, where I'm touching the, the colors that the trainers tells me to touch quickly and precisely on the balance board, the neck pull, I was not blinking. I, I, I was, I trained not to blink the whole 44 seconds of the run. The training were a bit longer, were almost 50 seconds. Yeah. Uh, but then the trainer told me, okay, now you don't blink. That's perfect. But now you have to blink. You have to choose two or three times where you blink because you have to clean your eyes because when you will be there, you have to have your eyes perfectly clean and fresh to go through all the details that you can capture. And that's when he said, you have to decide because he said, you are the pilot. You know when the, 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 the safe moments are to blink. So decide. So I decided to blink after each uh, critical moment. And one moment was at the exit of tunnel number one, which was after the takeoff, which was very critical. And at the exit, I had 300 meters of, of open sky. So I could blink. And in case there was something, I could still pull up. And then the other moment was at the after the entrance of tunnel number two, where I would have had the decreasing lift. So that's where you will see me blinking another time, the second time. And the third time was after the shape change of the tunnel number two from round to square. And that's the third time I'm blinking. These are the only three times I'm blinking. And, and I, and I prepare myself and train myself to do it in those moments while doing these trainings. That is amazing. Kayla, can you imagine that you don't, you literally do not have time to blink. No, I, I can't imagine it one bit. I mean, my allergies are terrible right now with dry eyes. <laughs> Training yourself not to blink. It's got to be a hard task to do. That's incredible. Um, Dario, I'm really curious. You know, you talk in your videos about the tunnel being your next step to push your personal boundaries. And as we're all pilots here, pilots listening, um, we all set our personal minimums and our personal boundaries. How did you get the idea to fly through a tunnel to push your personal boundary? I mean, it's, it's really not about personal boundaries. It's, it's, it's about, there is a lot of science in this project that I wanted to, to, to explore, you know, so was, was more about what, what I've been going through the mind of, of most of the pilots around the world, because I can't believe that 
nobody of you have ever thought what could happen if a plane flies through a tunnel. So I'm sure that someone has been thinking that like me, so I'm not, I don't think I'm the first and, and I, I, maybe, maybe we're the last one now because it's been done, <laughs> but, but was more to explore what was again, was to, to use science, which I'm, I really love the science of flying, I think is fascinating. And I think that there is so much still to explore and to understand. And I always tell myself that, that the day I will not get out of a plane after a flight and without learning anything from that flight, which can be any kind of flight, then that's the moment I have to stop flying because I'm overestimating myself. So my ego is too big. You know, so every minute of flight can teach us something. So it's about learning. It's not about setting boundaries or limits or minimum. You know, you know, watch, I mean, after flying through a tunnel, then anything should be looking very easy to me. And it's not everything, everything has its specific challenges and, and different. So we, we have to, to be, uh, very grounded and understand that when we are flying, we are in an environment that we are not made for. So okay. it's important to learn every time we fly. And again, the day I will land from a flight and I will say, okay, I did not learn anything today. Then that's the moment I will stop flying. So I will now continue. I will continue and try to continue to push boundaries of aviation and, and the human side of aviation and the science side, if it's possible, but that's only to explore and to learn and try to learn and, and, and try to understand what, I mean, birds are flying through tunnels. So we were just, we had just to follow their path and, and try to see. What so I on think the plane. that helps explain, uh, Dario, why your colleagues say about you in different podcasts and periodicals, they say about you that you're very safety focused, which some people watching this would have not thought that, <laughs> but it really is actually the key to doing the kind of adventurous flying you do safely is that whole scientific mindset you take to it. Yeah. I'm, I've been always very, very hard on safety with my students. When I was teaching, I've been, I mean, the first thing I did when I arrived in the flight school that, that, uh, that hired me at the, at my very first day as an instructor, the first thing I did, I went to the briefing room and I said, guys, you don't have a safety, a fly safety board. So then how can we put the reports? How can we do that? You know? So, and the first time I, I, I was teaching, I, I learned aerobatics and, and the first thing I learned was spinning. So the first thing I did, I went to the head of training of the school. I was a young instructor with almost no experience. Just, I said, why don't we include this kind of upset recovery training in the PPL? And we are talking about 2017. So there was no... Uh, sorry, uh, 2007. So we're not talking about UPRT was not there or advanced UPRT, all these things that are there. So I'm that kind of person. So uh, that's why I, uh, I, I, I push on saying I'm not a daredevil. I, I, really, I really think safety is paramount and, uh, and I'm really scared of flying. So if you ask me, are you scared of flying? I am. If you ask me, are you scared of flying through a tunnel? Oh my God, I am. I mean, I was really, really scared. But that's what helps me to mitigate and to train and to get better and better and better. And that's why I love the science behind the flight, because we can learn so much and we can improve safety so much. And when you tell me about having the basics, uh, very skilled and not on a knowledge based so that you don't have to 
to think about where your iPad is. I, I, this is for me fascinating. This is for me absolutely what we have to do. I mean, these are small details and the details are what makes difference in safety. Yeah, those are such helpful words. And for all of the pilots to realize that for a 45 second mission, you went through over a year of training, had 40 people on your support team and all the advanced metrics that you went through. It's helpful for all of us to understand what all went through that to make it safe and exciting. So I encourage uh, people, if you don't know about Dario, read a little bit about his background. He's got a fascinating background about how he came into aviation and had to leave it and came back to aviation. Dario, you're an inspiration. Thanks so much for your time today and, and for what you did and the excitement you brought. Thank you. Thanks a lot. How exciting to get the chance to talk to Dario Costa and talk to him about the elements that made that flight a success. He's also quite an inspiration, so I encourage you to take a look at his YouTube channel and some other podcasts that are out about Dario and take a look at his background. It's interesting and exciting. Thanks for listening to this special edition of There I Was. Alongside our producer, David O'Leary, I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Until next time, fly safe. Hey, listeners, if you like these podcasts and you'd like to help us continue providing them, please consider a donation to help our efforts. Go to aopafoundation.org slash donate. That's aopafoundation, all one word, dot org slash donate. And thanks for your support. There I Was is produced by the AOPA Air Safety Institute. If you'd like to hear other episodes, submit comments, or submit your own story to potentially be featured on the show, please visit airsafetyinstitute.org slash there I was. Thanks for listening.